The following podcast is from Doxa Church in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org. We've been studying the Book of Mark, and uh, we are in chapter going to be in chapter eight today. Uh, we are kind of rounding the corner. Um, it's been we've been looking at how this charismatic, enigmatic leader named Jesus appears on the scene in uh, Galilee in ancient Israel, Roman-controlled ancient Israel. And uh, Galilee, like I've mentioned before, is sort of like the, the Ori County of Israel. It's not like the most glamorous place to, to live. It's not the, um, not, you don't have zip code envy if you're living in Galilee. Um, and uh, I, I dated myself. I used the 90210 reference a few weeks ago. And somebody told me not to do that anymore because it dates me even even older. But uh, it's, it's, you, you have uh, you don't have zip code envy. You're in Galilee, but Jesus pops up all, all of a sudden, and he just starts making headlines all across uh, all across the the countryside. He's a Twitter phenomenon. Everybody is running out to see Jesus because as he goes around. By the way, you are very tan back from Brazil. Um, <laughs> Welcome back. Um, <laughs> I was like, wow, look, there's a tan and Cassidy. And, uh, and Jesus appears on the scene. He's a Twitter phenomenon. He's going around. People are being healed. Demons are being cast out. All kinds of crazy things are going on. Miracles are happening. Water's being turned into wine. People are like being able to see. It's crazy stuff is going on. And so he starts to gather this following. They're following him all over the place. Wherever he goes, they're coming out to him. Crowds and crowds of people coming to see him. He's a, he's a really big deal. And so, in fact, it grows so much that he, he, he calls these out of his followers, he calls out 12 guys, and he says, all right, you guys are going to be kind of my right-hand guys, and I can't be everywhere, so I'm going to send you guys out as my emissaries, and he prays for them and sends them out, and they go out to the neighboring villages, and the same thing starts happening with them. So it is a huge deal that is going on as Jesus is going out, and his disciples, his 12 apostles are going out, people being healed, huge crowds following him all over the place. And it looks like this thing is really, really happening. A big deal is going on. Because you see, the Jewish people have been waiting for a Messiah to come and rescue them. They're under Roman rule, under Roman occupation. And the idea that there was going to be this Messiah that had been promised in the Old Testament to them uh, was that it had grown to believe that a king was going to come and the king was going to come and was going to liberate them from their oppressors. And so Jesus appears on the scene, and even though he was a poor peasant, he's not, very, he's not a learned man, he's not, a, he's not a, one of the royal family yet, he appears and this stuff starts happening and people start to see like, maybe this is what's going on. The king is going to come and he's going to gather this army and he's going to over, overtake Rome and he's going to free us again. And it, it sort of looks like that might be the case And whenever he, he picks out his right-hand dudes, those 12 apostles that I was talking about, because whenever he picks them out, he doesn't go after the literati. He doesn't go after the, the, the learned people. He doesn't go after the, the smart guys. He doesn't go after the, he goes after the guys who get things done. 
They're poor, they're fishermen, they're peasants, but they're guys of action. In fact, two of them had the nickname Sons of Thunder, which I know I said before, I just think it's the most awesome nickname ever, and certainly the coolest nickname in the Bible to be called the Sons of Thunder. If, you're, if your nickname is a son, son of thunder, you're not just sitting around waiting for things to happen. You're going out there and getting things done. I mean, Peter, he's not one of the Sons of Thunder. Peter is all, he's like all, always, he's always riled up. He's always ready to go. He's always ready for a rumble. You know, when Jesus comes out walking on the water, Peter says, hey, can I join you? And he jumps out in the water with them. And later on in the story, when, when Jesus is uh, hanging out in the garden, and the guards are coming to get him, like Peter pulls out a sword. He's ready, man. He's packing. He's packing at, with Jesus. The people come out, and, and Peter pulls out a sword, cuts off a man's ear, and he's like, bring it. Bring it on. I'm going after the whole Roman army right now, right here. I'm going down. These people are men of action. So they see what's going on. God's, Jesus has this following going on. God's showing up. People are being healed. He's called these men of action that are with them. So it's pretty obvious, like, Jesus is going to get this thing rolling right now, like, that the 12 apostles are thinking, we're going to be like the generals in this army. And when we overtake uh, and we throw off Rome, like we're going to be the ones sitting beside Jesus. And like, you know, we got the honeys and we got the money and we got the people feeding me grapes and people fanning me over to the side. That's something like what they're thinking. They're thinking they're going to be up there going, things going on. But now in Mark 8, It's going to take an unexpected turn because they were waiting for Jesus to come with an army, with a sword, gather people together, overtake Rome. But Jesus takes a different turn. As they start heading to a little, t- little town called Caesarea Philippi, if you have your Bible, you can turn to Mark chapter 8, verse 27. In fact, things have been happening. Uh, the, the, the very beginning of, of Mark chapter 8, Jesus feeds 4,000 people. A couple weeks ago, we talked about how he fed the 5,000. Here he turns around and he feeds the 4,000 4, with just like a, a lunch. It's amazing. Um, he, meets, uh, he meets a man who's blind at a, at a village called Bethsaida. And he heals, heals him, and then every right after leaving there, in verse 27, and Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? Which was kind of unusual because Jesus was considered a Jewish rabbi or a teacher. That's what a, a rabbi is, is a teacher. And a, a Jewish teacher, a Jewish rabbi, never asked his students questions. They always asked him questions. You know, they would see him do something and say, hey, why are you doing that? Or tell me, can you explain this to me? But Jesus poses a question to them. He says, who do, you, who do people say I am? Which is an interesting question. And they replied to him, they said, which by the way, this, this, these two questions that he asked his disciples on this road as they're walking along, which, by the way, is a, while you're traveling, is a great time to ask somebody a serious question, isn't it? When you're, you're like you're walking on the road, or you're taking a walk, or you're driving the car because you're kind of both looking ahead and you've got other things going on, and you kind of ask people that got the guard down a little bit, hey. And he asked them, hey, who do people say I am? And they told him, so this, this is the scuttlebutt. This is what's going on. This is what people are saying on Facebook and Twitter. And they're, they're talking, you know, at the, around the water cooler. They're saying, some say John the Baptist. 
because you see, John the Baptist had been, um, Jesus' cousin, had been uh, unceremoniously beheaded by Herod already. Um, and uh, so that, so some people thought, well, maybe you're, you know, the, the, the spirit that was in John the Baptist has come back and he's kind of haunting the country of Israel uh, because Herod shouldn't have cut his head off. And so he's kind of, he's come back to, to, uh, to, to get retribution or to tell us that, he, that what was done was wrong. And others say Elijah, because there was this, uh, there was this, uh, belief among the Jews that Elijah was going to come back because the story of Elijah in the Old Testament is he didn't die. God, he didn't die bodily. God sent a chariot down from heaven and he jumped in the chariot and went up to heaven, which is, by the way, a great way to roll. I don't know what kind of wheels you, you rolled up in here today thinking you're a big deal, but you know, if you roll out on a chariot of fire up to heaven, you're driving in style. It's going to be hard to top that. So some people thought he was going to come back because he had never bodily died, so he's going to come back. Some people thought he was John the Baptist. Some people said Elijah. And others say one of the prophets. So they say, you know, maybe you're just one of the prophets has come back to us. And, and actually, all of those would have been a pretty cool deal. It would have been a pretty big deal if Jesus was. John the Baptist come back from the dead. Elijah come back from heaven from his chariot ride around the, de- around the celestial bodies. And, or another prophet come back. It would be a pretty amazing deal. If he was one of those things. But uh, the, the thing was that none of those would be unique. Jesus would have just been somebody that's already been here and has come back. He's a, a voice piece, a voice of God, somebody who's come to serve God, a servant of God that's come to tell us. But that none of that is, is zeroing in on who Jesus is, the uniqueness of who he is and what he came to do. And he asked them, but who do you say? That I am. It's pretty interesting the way Jesus set up these two questions. That he started out by saying, "Who do other people say I am?" Sorry, he's he's leading them to a place to get them to to tell them to tell him honestly, "Who do you say I am?" But kind of uh, kind of in a roundabout way. First of all, hey, who do you say? You know, I am. You know, sort of like if, if I wanted to ask uh, Ryan what people think about me, uh, what he thinks about me, if I just ask him, hey, what do you think about me? He's going to be real nice, going to say, oh, you're a nice guy, and this and that. But maybe I say, hey, who do, what do other people say about me when they, you hear him talk? He's like, oh, well, other people say all kinds of crazy things about you. And, you know, they, they say that you're kind of a cornball, and they say you're unprofessional, you know, whatever he thinks he, he says to them. And uh, I said, well, who do you say I am? And now it's kind of been open because other people say those things. He can be a little bit more honest with me. And that's what Jesus is doing with his disciples. He first of all says, hey, who does who's the crowd say I am? What, what, what are they thinking? And then he asks them, who do you say, say I am? Which, by the way, is the central question, the central sentence in the whole book of Mark. We're seeing the whole thing take a turn right here. Jesus has risen in popularity because he's gone around healing people and turning five loaves and two fish into enough food to feed between five and 20,000 people. He does it again just to show you it wasn't like an accident or a trick. 4,000 4, men show up and he, he feeds them with a lunch. He's doing all kinds of amazing things. Tells this man who was blind from birth to be able to see amazing things are going on. It's a big deal. And people are following because it's an amazing cool things to see and to be a part of. But here he starts to take a little turn and he asks them, I'm not asking you about 
why are you following me? Because how, many, how much bread am I multiplying so you can have a lunch? Or how many people am I healing? Who do you say I am? And that's not just the central question of Mark. That's the central question of life. That's the central question of your life and my life. Is who do you say Jesus is? Is he somebody who gives you something? Is he somebody that makes you feel good? Or is he something else? Who do you say I am? And it's not a question that I ask you or that we ask each other. It's a question that Jesus himself asks you directly. Who do you say I am? And Peter, that firebrand I was telling you about, the one who's always ready to jump on the water and try to walk, Peter who cuts off people's ears, and Peter who's quick to speak, all of a sudden says, he answers and says, you are the Christ. Now, that was a very big statement. Because in saying so, he's saying, you are the Messiah. You are the awaited one. You're what all of us have been, wait, have been waiting for. See, the, the nation of Israel had fallen on hard times. They had been, been captives for years and years and years. And now they've been under control of Rome. They've been conquered for a long time, and they've been waiting for this king to come and make things right. And every year after year after year, they're waiting for somebody to come and make things right. Do you ever feel like that? You ever feel like, I'm just waiting for life to take a better turn. I'm waiting for somebody to show up or to figure out life so that like, it gets easier, and I figure out like I can finally get on top of things. You ever feel like that? Like, I, I get, I, something's going to happen at some point that's going to help me. Like, I'm going to meet the person of my dreams, or I'm going to have kids, or I'm going to get that promotion. I'm going to do something that's going to the, 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 get me around the corner, get me over the hump, and then, like, finally I'll have life figured out. Life, life will be easy then whenever that happens. But I don't know what your experience is, but uh, the oldest person in this room, I'm not going to point him out, but he would probably or she would probably be able to tell you that time never comes. You're always waiting to get over the hump. By the time it never comes, they've been waiting, they've been waiting, they've been waiting for that person to come and make things right. They've been waiting, 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 and Jesus shows up. And for Peter to say, you are the Christ, is a huge deal. You are the king who has come to make things right. It's an amazing proclamation he makes. And he strictly charged him, charged them, to tell no one about him. He doesn't deny it. He doesn't say, ah, shucks. He says, no. He, he, that is exactly who he is. He is the Christ. He's the one that has come to save them. You see, Jesus is making a move here. The disciples must move from the status of passive recipients, people who are just hanging around and re- receive what Jesus is giving them, to to active participants in what Jesus is calling them to do. If they're going to continue on the way with him, that's why he's asking them, who do you say I am? If they're going to continue on the way with him, they're continuing on his journey, they're going to continue to be his disciples, then, then they can't simply be spectators and bystanders on the side who say, Jesus is a cool guy that's come to do some cool things, but he's calling them to something. 
Because Jesus, if Jesus is the king who has come that we've all been waiting for, then, then that changes the whole story. Because you don't come to a king trying to negotiate. You don't come to a king like telling him, like, I'll follow you if you do this and you do that. You come to a king and you lay his sword, your sword at his feet and you say, I am your servant. Do as you see fit. Peter answered him, you are the Christ. At some point, these people that have been walking with Jesus and, and everyone must look deep inside ourself and deep within Jesus and see, are we going to commit to him as king and find our identity and our mission in his identity and his mission? Are we going to view him as sort of a, a cool thing to watch, like a show that had passed through town Sort of like the circus or something, some cool reality show that you watch on TV. It's interesting to watch. I'm cool to show up and watch the Jesus show. Or, if he, or am I going to serve him as the king who has come to make things right? And he began to teach them. This is where the, the story really begins to change. So at this point, the disciples have been waiting. Like, okay. He's going to gather this army. We're going to be his generals. We're going to overtake Rome. We're going to throw, throw off their bonds. We're going to be in charge. We're going to be his right-hand men. We're going to, this is going to be awesome. So this is coming up. And then Peter says, uh, you're the Christ. That's who you are. And so they're like, all right, it is on now. We're like going to get swords. We're going to order bazookas online. We're going to take them on. We're going to throw it. It's going to be great. He's going to, like, he's Jesus. He's done amazing things. Maybe he's going to call fireballs from heaven and, you know, shoot flames out of his mouth and throw them out of town. I don't know, but this is going to be a cool show to be a part of. We're going to do this. And Jesus takes a whole different path than they expect at this point. Because his response to Peter's announcement that you are the Christ, you're the king that has come to set things right, is he began to teach them, verse 31, that the Son of Man must suffer many things. What? We, we thought you're going to make other people suffer. You're going to show up and you're going to be king and you're going to conquer the enemy and you're going you're to be in charge. You're going to have a throne in Jerusalem and we're going to have many thrones around you or we're going to be at the decision table. This is going to be awesome. He said the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes. No, 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 that's, that's not the idea, Jesus. You're going you're gonna to be in charge. You're going to overcome. You're not going to suffer and be rejected. You're going to overcome and, and push out the enemy. And be killed. And after three days, rise again. When Jesus takes on this mantle, yes, I am the Messiah, I'm the king who's returned, he, ta he paints a different picture. He doesn't paint a picture of a king who is walking down red velvet carpet to his throne. He's not a king who is robed with purple. He's not a king who has trumpeters and minions all around him. He's a king who has come 
not to sit on a throne, but to die on a cross. He's a king who has come to suffer and to die. He's a king who has come not to be served, not to set up a great and amazing palace and a great and amazing kingdom where people show up and bring him gifts and they serve him, they pay tribute to him, but rather a king who shows up himself to serve and to give his life in service to the people who most needed it. It's an upside-down kingdom he's come He came not to conquer by charisma and popularity, nor by the sword and power. He came to set things right by a sacrificial exchange. By saying, I'm going to show up. See, because the problem that you guys have in Israel isn't that Rome is over you and you're not in charge of yourself. The problem you have is a sin problem that separates you from the Father. And he says to you and me, the problem that you have in your life, the problems that you have, isn't that your marriage is not very good. The problem you have isn't the fact that your, your kids are disobedient. That The problem you have isn't the fact that you're not married or that you wish you weren't married or your job isn't good or you don't live in the right neighborhood or your car is falling apart. The problem you have isn't the fact that you're ugly or you think you're ugly. The problem that you have, sorry. (laughs) But, I mean, if we're going to be honest, like some of us, we think like, my problem is I'm not pretty. And in our society, if you're not pretty, if you're not good looking, like you're on the bottom. Because it's better in our society today, in a beauty culture, it's better in our society to be beautiful than to be rich. Because if you're beautiful, you can get anything you want. And so people are chasing beauty, pouring money, fortune, energy, hours, all the time to try to get or remain beautiful and young in the ideal of beauty. That's not your problem. The problem is a sin problem that by nature separates us from the Father. The problem is if you had everything, and we're going to see in a second, if you had everything that you ever wanted, it would never answer the deepest longings of your soul. Because the deepest longings of your soul are really to be united with the Father and find love and identity and value in him and in your relationship with him. And Peter hears Jesus say he's going to suffer and he's going to die. And Jesus says, no, this, and Peter says, no, this is not right. Verse 32, and he, and, and he said this plainly. Jesus told them plainly, I'm going to suffer and I'm going to die. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. That word rebuke is the same word that we see when, when Jesus rebukes demons and they leave people. It's a strong word. He rebukes Jesus. But turning and seeing his disciples, verse 33, he, that's Jesus, rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. He said, You're thinking about the, the palaces and the armies and the, and the people and the fame and the honor, but that's not what I came to do. 
Because you see, Jesus from here on out in the book of, in the, in the gospel of Mark, he's on the road to Jerusalem and he's on the road to the cross. We're on the road to Easter now. We're Mark 8, we're at the end of February, we're on the road to Easter. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Now, I don't know if you've grown up in church and you're kind of used to that, that, that statement. Maybe you've heard a lot. Maybe you've, you know, got it printed somewhere in, in your house or, you know, I don't know. Maybe you memorized it as a kid and kind of, you know, we hear, we have a cross. We think about cross in terms of, you know, we wear them on our neck and see them at church and, you know, it's cool kind of thing. But the cross was a sign of incredible repugnance to a Jew at this time. Only the very worst criminals and only the poorest criminals, only the, the dregs of society were killed on the cross. It was the Roman picture of torture. It was the way that they exerted their empirical control over the nations that they had conquered. It was an incredible, embarrassing thing to be, to be killed on a cross. You did not want any part of that. And so for him to say, if you want to follow me, you must take up your cross and follow me, was, it was, it was unheard of. It was, uh, it was scandalous. The cross itself was scandalous to people. The cross symbolized Roman oppression and was reserved for the lowest of the social classes. And then look at what he says, for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Whoever would save his life would lose it. What he's talking about here is he's just talking about where you, where you build your identity and your personal value. He's talking about where you build your identity and your personal value. Look at the, notice the terms that he has in this section. He's going to use, he says, save your life or lose it. And then um, down, we're going to get to it later, but verse 36, he says, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? He uses economic terms, save, loss, profit, gain. Because see, we're all seeking to gain. We're all seeking to gain in our life. Whether it's career or money, status, Facebook likes, friends, lovers, good works, opinions of other religious people, we're always looking to gain. We're always looking to, to, to guild, to, 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 to build our life, to get better. We're always trying to, to, to do something so we can add to the bottom line of my life because my, we find our identity there. I find my identity in the fact that I got 18 likes on this, state, on this statement on Facebook. Uh, I gave my identity on the, on the fact that I'm driving this car today. I gave my identity on the fact that I've passed my brother and like my house is bigger than my brother's house now. I gained identity in the fact that I got that, I got that, uh, that, that promotion or my identity is based on the fact that I don't have those things. 
I don't feel good about myself because I'm the one with the smaller house or the, or the worse car or the, or the rattier clothes or the, or, the, or the messier house or the uh, more disobedient children. And so I feel all the time less and less, lower and lower because I'm not where I want to be or I feel high because I've achieved something in life. We're talking about spending in order to gain something back. If I work really hard, I can gain uh, a better car, better, better house, a better, better friends. I can look better. If I work out hard, I can be stronger, fitter, skinnier. If I get that surgery, I spend the money on that. It's all about gain. I'm, I'm spending in order to gain my identity, whatever it is. Because at the heart of whether, whatever your deal is, whatever it is that catches your attention, puts the, the glimmer in your eye, it might, be, it might be the girl that's on your arm or it might be the bottom line on your, on, your, on your paycheck or your bank account. It might be all kinds of things. But whatever it is, the heart of that isn't the fact that you have the girl on your arm or the money in your bank account. The heart of it is that you find your identity in those things. And what he's saying is, that it's possible for you to spend your whole life in investing in an identity that's gonna break apart. Because when your identity is, and value is based upon what you have gained, your sense of identity and value will rise and fall accordingly. It's like the stock market. And so you view your identity and your personal value by according to how many likes you have, how many friends you have, what kind of, whatever it is for you. It could be something big, it could be something silly, it could be athletics, it could be the team that you pull for, something that you are investing in, you're investing in that thing and that's where you put your money. You're saying, that's where my value is and if they're doing well, if my team is doing well, if I'm doing well, I'm up here and when it's not, my value is going down. And if you have little in life, whatever that thing that you're investing in, if you have little in life, you'll be crushed under the weight of disappointment and despair. And if you have much in life, if you, if you achieve your career, you have the bottom line to your bank account, you have the amount of friends, you're dressed like you want, your hair is looking like you want, you know, whatever it is for you that you're putting value in, that you're, that you're, that you're banking in my identity in this, if you achieve it, if you have it, you're gonna be eventually either crushed by the fact that, you, that, you, that the, it never satisfied, that your desires are insatiable, or, you're gonna, or you will break under the weight. Maybe you work your whole life to have money and you finally get it, and the, the weight of the money just collapses you. It, it, it breaks you. You ever seen that happen to somebody? Like they get a lot of money, they get the, the wife that they always wanted, and then they, they start to, it, does, it falls apart. They can't handle the success they get, and it kind of crumbles underneath them. They weren't strong enough to, to hold up the weight of what they were investing their life in. Or have you seen somebody who was consumed with money, career, maybe it's getting married, and they finally get what they wanted. They cross that line, and they find that, it doesn't satisfy, and so then they make a new line, and they keep running, and they get like manically obsessed by crossing the, to cross the next line and cross the next line because you find out that you're never satisfied. It's like somebody who's a junkie who's never, ever satisfied. You gotta need, the, the next hit doesn't satisfy as much as the last one did. 
The next one satisfies less, so you have to chase it more and more, faster and faster, until you're consumed by it. You invest into it until you become a slave to it, and that's what he's saying. Whoever would save his life will lose it, because what you're banking your life in, identity and value in something else, you eventually become a slave to it. Ecclesiastes 1.8 says, all things are full of weariness. This is Solomon talking, who was incredibly rich, had lots of wives, had hundreds of concubines, so he had all the money, all the sex, all the power that he could ever want. And he says, all things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. No matter what you see, no matter how much you you taste, you have to taste more, you have to see more, you have to get more. No matter how much I have in my pocket, I gotta get more because I've, I've invested this much in saying my value and my security and my identity comes from this X thing that I'm investing in. And so I gotta keep throwing money and time and effort at it because this thing has to satisfy because if it doesn't, in those moments when I'm falling asleep at night or I'm waking up in the morning and I have a a moment of clarity, I realize if it doesn't, then my life is empty and meaningless. I've lost my life and though I became a slave to whatever it was I was chasing. Ecclesiastes 4, 7, and 8 says, again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has has no other So somebody who has either son or brother. So somebody who doesn't have anybody to leave their money to. No son, no brother, yet there is no end to all his toil and his eyes are never satisfied with riches. His eyes are never satisfied with riches so that he never asks, for whom am I tolling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. Proverbs 27, 20, it says, the eyes of man are never satisfied. No matter how much you get, it never fills. Your identity is never high enough because for a moment it will be, but something happens. Either you figure out you can't hold up the weight or it's not satisfying and you become hungrier and hungry and hungrier. It's sort of like eating Krispy Kreme donuts. Hot, fresh now. That first one is amazing. That first hit is awesome. Then you eat the second one. It's not quite as good as the first one, but it's still pretty good. And then if you let yourself loose, you can eat like, they go down fast and easy. Those hot fresh now, it's not like eating a big old cake donut. It just goes down fast and easy. Before you know it, you know, I'm not going to admit how far I've gotten into a box before, but... You go for three, four, five, however far you go into the box, it's the law of diminishing returns. It's never the third, the fourth, the fifth. It's never as good as the first one. The eyes of man are never satisfied. Our desires are insatiable. And so that's what he's saying whenever you who seek to save your life will lose it because you're investing in something that will never, ever pay off and you become a slave to it. And you wake up 10, 20, 30 years down the line and you've, you've, let, you've spent your life running after something that never, ever satisfies. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. That word life is a Greek word psyche and it means personhood, being, identity. And he sets up a conundrum here, doesn't he? He says, but whoever would save his life will lose it. 
But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? You know what he was saying to his, to his disciples and what he's saying to us? He's saying, my road to, the, to being king is not the road of power. It's not the road of charisma. It's not the ro- road of force. It's the road to death. It's the road to giving my life up. And your road is the same road as mine. Because it's there at the cross that we see that Jesus came and he exchanged his identity for your identity. By nature, you and I are sinners separated from Christ. Separated from the Father, the one who we were created for, we're separated from, won't know part of. But an exchange happens at the cross. Through death and suffering, and only through the death and suffering, he says that he must do this. Only through the death and suffering of Jesus Christ could he take on your identity as the sinner eternally separated from Christ, eternally separated from the Father, and give you his identity as the beloved son, the beloved child of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. But by clutching and holding on to whatever it is that you and I try to find our identity and value in, we lose out on that. It's only by following Jesus Christ to the cross and saying, my identity is filthy rags. What I've invested in is empty and meaningless. It is ins- my heart is insatiable. It never satisfies me. And I exchange that for his identity. It's not until that point that I find life. So what does that mean this morning if you're not a Christian? If some of us here today are not a believer. Well, first of all, it changes the definition of what a Christian is for many of us. A Christian isn't somebody who just is a part of a church. A Christian isn't somebody who thinks Jesus was a cool guy or a great guy or an amazing prophet. That's why he asked them, who do you say I am? A Christian is somebody who's come to Jesus Christ as the king and laid their sword down at his feet and said, whatever. Whatever you say, that I'll do. You are Lord and I'm not. And I'm not going to clutch onto my, what I've been investing in for identity and value. I'm going to find my value and identity in you instead. Some of us have found identity and value through religious works, through being good, through going to church, through reading my Bible, through being nice to people, through not uh, cussing that person who pulls out in front of me on 501, not cussing out that tourist who is riding their brakes down 17. But your, your identity and value can never come through that. Others of us have found identity and value through money and career and women and guys and fashion and 
beauty, but they are insatiable. The most important question of your life, if you're here and you're not a believer, is Jesus' question to you, who do you say I am? And are you willing to exchange your identity for his, to admit your weakness, and to admit your need? Then what does it mean for us this morning, this passage, um, if we're not a Christian? And if we are a Christian? Well, Jesus' question to you, who do you say I am, is still the most important question in your daily life. It's easy to kind of forget, isn't it, even as Christians? Like we, I throw up a prayer on my way to work in the morning, God, help me today. Throw up another prayer before I eat. Throw up another prayer, God, help me not to cuss out this person that's getting ready. I see a call coming in. God, help me not to cuss out this person. God, help me not to do this. It's all, help me not to do this or help me to do this. Help me with this. But am I thinking the fact that he is the king who has come? I'm his disciple and my life is his. Or am I trying to use him for my agenda? That's what they wanted. These disciples in the crowd, they wanted to use Jesus for their agenda to throw off the Roman government. Are you trying to use Jesus for your agenda to make you feel better about yourself or help you through your day or help you through your life or get you a a job or get you a wife or get you a whatever? And then how are you as a Christian falling into old definitions of identity? We all do it. You ever wake up one, one, one day or you get partly with the day and you realize, like, I don't feel very good today. I, I feel very frustrated and angry with myself or disappointed with life. And ever, ever, you should stop at that point and ask yourself, why do I feel this way? And it's usually because you and I are, have found our identity and value in either the circumstances around us or something that, or the way I think I'm performing and it's not going the way I wanted it to at that, that point. And what I need to do at that point is to refresh myself on the fact that my identity and value comes by following Jesus to the cross. Because, see, at some point for all of us as believers, we have to um, go from coming and seeing to going and dying. And that's what Jesus was preparing his disciples for at this point. Hey, don't come and see the Jesus show. Go and die. Follow me to the cross and find your identity and value there. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Doxa Church. We are so glad that you took the time to join us today. At Doxa, we exist to make disciples who joyfully worship Jesus with their whole lives. We invite you to join us. Doxa Church meets at 10 a.m. every Sunday at River Oaks Elementary School. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org.